Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discussed will come from Michael's vague memories, excuse me, not vague memories, of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, <laughs> the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today, we're discussing John 6 and Eddard 14 of A Game of Thrones. How's it going, Michael? You know, Dan, it goes pretty, pretty good. Good. I'm glad. I'm uh, I'm experimenting with mindset for for recording here. I went to a brewery earlier today, and this does not line up with the brewery, but uh, me and one of our longtime listeners tried some gin flights, which let me tell you, if you're not a fan of straight gin, this would not have persuaded you to be a fan of straight gin. <laughs> Uh, well, you know what? Sometimes the flight is not a flight of experiences. It's what your personal experience is. Yeah. You're flying now. Yeah. That's, that seems about right. I like gin. I think, yeah, I think you should invite me to these things. You're very invited. And that would be a bit of a trip for you. I think you should do these things closer to me. All right. Next time. No All right. Problem. Good. I look forward to it. But, uh, but yeah, no, I like gin too. I, it just kind of needs to be mixed with something. Oh, Dan, if you can't handle the beauty that is evergreen tree taste distilled into the fineness that is gin, then it's it's like you can't even participate in this book that we read. I love me some pine needles, some pine forest. So anyway, we've got some, your, some your drunkenness means up. nothing to me. <laughs> it means I'm rambling a little bit. How's that? How's that for impacting I'll your life? carry us along. Let's talk about this book, Dan, because I've been dying to get to this. I know we had to miss a week. I don't know if anybody noticed, but People Lord noticed. knows. I'm sorry. Lord everybody. knows there's a lot that's been going on in this book. Things are speeding up. Things are like happening zip, zap, zooey. Yeah, we, uh, we've we got some consequences to some decisions ahead of us here. I still feel like everything I've said about this book so far, I've been on the nose, amazingly correct about everything. That feels right to me. It feels very right to me. Yeah. So why don't you uh, bring us into John 6? Tell us how right you were. Well, I just continue. Well, I don't know. I didn't make any predictions on John like this. Uh, no. I think that we left off with... John feeling in a really good place, getting Sam Tarly kind of like uh, escalated out of the beatings that he knew he would be getting. Yeah, and skipping into, basic training. Yeah, into like a stored-ish position, so it seemed. Uh, and in fact, we this is kind of where it kicks off, and I'll get to that in a second. But uh, the end of the last chapter is it, it, the last John chapter, at least, was in. Let me know if I'm wrong, but what I remember is he was really talking to one of the maesters, like the chief maester up at the wall. The only maester. The, the only wall. maester at the wall. making <laughs> Maester Eamon. Yeah. But that it was sort of this wonderful cherry on the top of a chapter that had to do with John being a real leader of the men that were there. You know, a real sort of uh, uh, maker, if you will. Our, our boy is growing up. He's growing up, Dan. He's growing up so well. And so uh, how fun to start this chapter off. And we find that Sam Tarly kind of like excitedly plops himself down next to John. He says, you won't believe it, John. That making me a that making me a steward. Yeah, the plan worked. It, worked. Uh, it, it was successful. Not a huge surprise, mm -hmm. but still fun. And I'll say that uh, it kind of continues the attitude that John had had at the end of the last chapter. He feels successful. He's clearly making an impact on things. And good on him. I uh, We sort of move quickly into, and, and I think, I don't know if I was paying enough attention to it at the end of the last chapter that I had with John, but, you know, they all got, you know, we found out there was a group of them that were getting passed from basic training out into being like right. full-blown Night's Watchmen. Uh, but now it seems like we're learning a little bit more about what the what the the motions are about to be. We, there's a lot of ceremony that's about to happen. Uh, the the I don't know how to refer to them. The recruits, like John and his no, pals, that's right. Yeah, uh, the recruits are kind of lined up in front of some of the high you know rankings and echelons of the Night's Watch, and they sort of are given a little bit of understanding of what's about to happen. They're told this is your last chance to walk away. Uh, before you, you know, take the oath, they are sort of go through some administrative stuff. Where would you like to take the oath and how? Uh, and then they're reminded basically, and I didn't know this, we find out a little bit later in the chapter, but they find out where they're going to be assigned after they take the oath. 
Yeah. Uh, they have to swear allegiance and then they're sort of outfitted to to a position. Yeah. So so it's both the three orders that we talked about, the builders, stewards and the rangers, but also and we haven't spoken about this in a little while, which castle on the wall they're in. So we know that there are a lot of castles along the wall, most of which are defunct. And effectively, what we're left with now is Castle Black in the middle, and then one on the west and one on the east. The one on the west is called the Shadow Tower. The one that comes up here is called East Watch by the Sea. And uh, and so some of the recruits that are being promoted are being sent there, crucially. Um, but, you know, I, I want to focus for a moment on the speech that they get from the Lord Commander here, Lord Commander mm -hmm. Mormont, because, you know, it's, it's about a page and a half long, and it's just a really nice speech that he's giving kind of summarizing everything that we learned about the night's watch uh they're doing it in the sept we got a brief note that i thought was entertaining that the septon was sober for once mm -hmm. uh there's this will this will become more and more apparent as we go but george r, r. martin is a lapsed catholic and uh and there are aspects to the faith of the seven that i think kind of take on the catholic church and so this is one of those little little zingers that he in, includes in there that i think <laughs> is a fun moment but yeah lord commander mormont he's he leads off you came to us outlaws poachers rapers debtors killers and thieves you came to us children you came to us alone in chains with neither friends nor honor it's it's not leading off the way that john thought but it's not even something that we get a reaction from john for uh it, it's really something that he has learned and uh and and learned the truth of over time and this is lord commander mormont being really honest about what the night's watch is in a way that we didn't see when john was thinking about it at the beginning and we didn't even see last week or, or two weeks ago when ned was trying to recruit in the throne room so i think it's interesting to see him call out this is where you leave behind your past your past of degeneracy your past of criminal behavior and now it's your time to step up and that kind of is the the carrot along with the stick of you can leave if you want to this is your option to leave your past life behind and uh, if you choose to do that then you have to follow by our rules I like I like your perspective on that and I don't disagree with any of it but it's always funny to me because I when I read it the voice that I hear is not one being like an honest and like sort of very transparent voice of like hey this is who you are look at how much you've matured as much as that sort of like that sort of like general patent like like bravado of like you're all maggots <laughs> yeah you're all maggots no matter where you come from and now you're going to be men unless you choose to remain maggots you magic maggots yeah I mean I think it's a it's a lot of both uh and I think that's part of the nice aspect of this you've mm -hmm. got the camaraderie of the watch you are now one of the brothers you are now one of us welcome to this uh brotherhood welcome to this order and on the flip side it has all of the alienation drawn up in it you are no longer of the family you came from you are no longer of the people you came from you have no ties except to us which means you have to do what we tell you you have to live your life for us any wishes that you have after you take this oath to escape and live your own life and embark on a life of freedom are you being selfish and ignoring what you've committed to and i think those two things go hand in hand when you're creating a martial order when you're creating a world of, of soldiers that have to obey where you want them committed to the unit but you also want them to have no sense of self mm -hmm. uh, outside of the entity that they've joined i'll say something that really did strike me in his speech was towards the end of it where he talks about honor a lot he talks about what honor means and and what it means to be honorable and to be honorable men and then in fact he goes so far as to say our mistress now is honor uh and you are the only sons we shall ever know uh I, I I thought you know we've talked a little bit we've talked a lot a bit about honor and especially when it comes to Ned and Starks right and what they do and I've been very critical about it I think something that's really nice here is the relationship of honor to duty uh, you know, I think that Ned, you know, when you get to a higher level, when you're a, a leader of an area like Winterfell, you know, of a region, when you're a regent like that, uh, you know, having honor means kind of sticking to what you think is honorable. But th that's very different in my mind than, you know, dedicating yourself to the honor of something else. You right. know, it, this is the honor of the Night's Watch. And and I just think there's just a pardon the, the the phrasing right but like a stark contrast yeah uh between like the honor of the, the the sort of like like I don't know like loose footed 
crummy honor that the Starks seem to live their lives by in order to like fail hard versus what I see the Night's Watch being as like, you know, we're going to stand here and be honorable together for one another. You know, it's interesting that you single out the Starks that way, because I think there are places where Ned works the way that you're talking about and other places where he seems to embody the type of honor that you're talking about, where he's the Lord that we've seen that seems committed to the social contract committed to taking care of the people under his rule, uh, whether it's jewelry or whether it's uh, people even further down or the guardsmen or whatever it is, but the idea of providing for them through the winter, providing for them, keeping them safe and and healthy through the, the good times and the bad times seems to be central to his worldview. And the contrast between that and his internal monologue concerning things like telling a lie which is more the the surface level honor that you're talking about or you know his sexual honor his his purity mm-hmm. in that sense which is less interesting to me as a moral code because it's so uh it's so about heightening the self it's so about look how great i am rather than actually giving anything to anyone but he seems to manifest both of those types of honor over what we've seen over the course of this book I suppose I, I can't help but think of like, you know, like sort of like a cliched phrase of, you know, you, you either die honorably or live long enough to become the douchebag who demands and defines honor. <laughs> like he's just a guy saying he he's the one that's laying down the law in his in his family and amongst his people. You know, this is what how we define honor. Uh, whereas, you know, here's a younger person, Jon Snow demanded you know here's what honor is to you uh and what you have to subscribe to right i just think you know we've seen other people in the nobility we've seen certainly people who don't care about honor and have no honor but but also people who care about honor in that superficial way uh or at least we've heard about them the characters that kind of come first to mind are tywin lannister and stannis as these people who are very rigid and very authoritarian and it doesn't seem to be about giving back in the way that Ned necessarily talks about it with the Winterfell men. And we've seen that side from Ned. Uh, and, and that just makes me think of the, since we're in a John John chapter, the growth that John has had over the course of this book of coming from, I am honorable because I was raised in the Stark household. And that has an impact in terms of how I should be treated versus I am honorable, and therefore that means something for how I should treat others. And I think both of those things kind of have a root in Ned and have a root in the Stark household. And it's fun to see kind of both sides of that coin that seem to go together. That's fair. I, I have more to say about this, but I'll wait till our next chapter, which is Ned, yeah. uh, that we'll talk about in a moment. All right, totally fair. Um, with that said, like you were saying, this is sort of speech given about you know, by, by Lord Mormont and, and, and the leader of the Night's Watch saying, you know, welcome, but here's the honor that you're taking on and you make your decision. And uh, and it's all, all kind of a lead into the swearing in ceremony. Uh, he, he takes a break at the end of his sort of speech, at the end of his speech, and kind of says, is there anyone here who believes in the old gods? Yeah, uh, so they're, they're going to take the oath before their gods. For most people, that's the seven, but if you need a heart tree, we'll go and walk out to the heart tree so you can swear before the old old gods. I'm already a little lost here. Which the old gods are like? Does, is that including like Brandon the Builder? No. So so Brandon the Builder is just a historical figure, kind of a figure of legend. But the old gods are pretty nameless. The old gods are the werewoods. You know, it's the faces okay, it's and the werewoods, and it's it's just kind of an amorphous concept. We don't have any more definition to it at all but when i think of the old gods i think of brand's dream i think of yeah, ned okay. cleaning his sword in the god's wood uh before the tree we don't really see him say a prayer it's more i'm in this space and being uh introspective and thinking about the world and, and communing with nature whereas the new gods are the seven who seem to have faces and concepts to them and all of this popery since i compared it to the catholic church already <laughs> all of the the septons and the ritual you know we haven't seen it firsthand but it seems like there's a lot more definition to it than the gods. Gods. And, and to that point too like it's we haven't really been introduced to any of these seven gods right they're just sort of known to us as the seven gods and i yeah. i think i think so yeah i i i'm not a hundred percent sure i don't remember the seven coming up in a more 
broken yeah, down like, sense. like concretely. Okay, yeah. great. So, so Mormon sort of says, you know, for those who, who do want to, you know, worship to the old gods, go ahead and raise your hand. John raises his hand. Uh, and, and I don't remember like where, oh yeah, it's literally right here. But the idea is like, like you were saying, if you do worship the old gods, you want to go to a heart tree, the werewoods. Uh, and so that's who he's finding out who needs to go there. John raises his hand and sure enough, Sam Tarly says, Hey, can I, is it okay if I, if I join, uh, I think there was a lovely little bit of banter back and forth there where Lauren Mormon says, we raise this way. And Sam kind of says, well, the gods I was raised with never seemed to listen to me anyway. So like, maybe this is a great time to change sides. Yeah. I, I, I love that. Cause it's... he's had, he's had such a rough childhood and, uh, and, you know, certainly the traditions of his family probably don't mean a ton considering how difficult his father has been. But I also really like the moment on top of that. He says, uh, Lord Marmon, or it's uh, rather Sir Jeremy Ricker, who is uh, currently the head of the Rangers, says, why would you forsake the gods of your father and your house? And Sam says, the Night's Watch is my house now. Like, that's the whole speech Lord Commander mm -hmm. Mormont just gave. We're in the north. We're as far north as you can get in the Seven Kingdoms. And the gods in the north are the old gods. What, what does it matter what house I came from? I'm forsaking that house now. I'm giving that's it right. up. And so it seems to me like Sam is kind of embodying the message that's being communicated to them more than than the other people are frankly i mean yeah not that the night's watch is asking everybody to convert for them but it seems like sam is committing a little bit more than the other people around him here yeah no and, and i think that's fair and i think also like again i like the sort of like the way that you're phrasing it but i can't help but think that he just really has a kind of like a guy crush on john right now john's been so good to him like, yeah i want to follow john and, and, and that's probably the biggest reason <laughs> Um, I realized I misspoke a little earlier. I said that they were going to have to take their oath before they're assigned. It, it's actually, as as we see here, they're assigned. Mm -hmm. they, they're figuring out where to go. But it's sort of like the opportunity to walk away seems to have passed. Uh, but John, we get a surprise here. Uh, and John is surprised most of all, sure enough, where they're calling out where people are being assigned. And John, ready to be, you know, just following the footsteps of Benjamin, first ranger. going to be the first ranger. Uh, in fact, is called to join the stewards. Yes, uh, and he is a little, a little pissy about that, Dan. That he is. That he is. You know, it's worth remembering that it, it was just a couple of chapters ago, probably about a month ago for us in real time, but not that long ago that John had this conversation with Maester Eamon and with Chet, where he was like, "Yeah, but the stewards don't really do anything, right? Why can't Sam just be a steward? They're just servants. Who really cares, right?" Yep. Uh, so, so this feels pretty telegraphed that. When he gets this news, it's gonna gonna go pretty poorly. Maybe maybe some uh, negative foreshadowing there of back in that old conversation where oh you you're gonna talk shit about it. Maybe we'll put you there too. And not only does John get assigned that, and he thinks for a second maybe it's a mistake, but sure enough, he sees Sir Alistair studying him, and uh, and he knew he knew this was intentional, and it feels almost aggressively like Sir Alistair might be out to get him. Right. Uh, you know, he ruined the training for Sir Alistair, uh, who wanted it to be a certain way. He bonded the the, the brothers together. Uh, and so this seems like it's kind of his comeuppance, if you will. And it's it's funny because, I mean, we've just been talking about the eternal obligation that this is. And like, what a shit show to have to be assigned eternally to a department yeah. that you do not want to be in. Like you just you just got your job for the rest of your life and you're one of the servants when you thought you were going to be one of the knights. Uh, John is quick to get really uh, prickly about this. Uh, he starts to snap at people pretty fast about it. He He's assigned, it's it's clear, he's assigned to be uh, Lord Commander Mormont's personal steward. And this is, Lord Commander Mormont is the Lord Commander. He's the chief person. Um, and so, like, that's without a, like, like, it's clear that it's a high up person, but John really sees it as being like a butler. Uh, and that's kind of his response. You know, uh, oh, what am I going to like polish his boots and serve his meals, draw a bath for him? Uh, he, he's pretty upset. He, he really yeah. leans into I mean, it. I think it's worth noting that it's both, right? So we haven't quite gotten to the next part yet where we hear why it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but John's not wrong. Like, yeah, he is going to serve the Lord Commander's meals. He's going to serve. He's going to change his sheets. He's going to do his laundry. He's going to do all of the servant things. And as somebody who has effectively been in nobility his entire life, you know, he hasn't fully been, but he's been treated that way the whole mm -hmm. time. 
And having that background, yeah, it's jarring to learn that he's going to have to do all of these things that he's taken for granted. You know, he's he's never cleaned clothes before. He's never served a meal before. This is he's been waited on. And yeah, yeah, there are reasons to for why this assignment is not an insult in the way he's interpreting it. But he's not wrong in terms of what the responsibilities are going to be. You know, Sam is quick to help John understand what this really could and and probably does mean. Uh, And Sam points out that in his own experience, you know, before his younger brother was born and and started to fill the shoes that that were supposed to be Sam's uh, with his father and his family, Sam points out he had to attend all of his father's meetings and be there all the time and be present for everything, to hear everything. And that John will, sure, you know, drawing the bath and pouring the wine, but be, will be present at all the pol- political conversations right? and present at Every all meeting. the decisions that are being made. And Sam is quick to really point out, it looks like, John, you are being groomed to potentially take over nights like the Night's Watch. Yeah, it's a there's a, a brief moment in here also where Sam, who Sam also got assigned to the stewards and he has this reaction. I mean, this is his friend. This is a guy who's been taking care of him since he got here. He has this reaction, John, don't you understand? It's not as bad as you think. But it's worth noting, there is a third person here for a chunk of this conversation, a guy named Darion, who is a singer, uh, who we, I don't know if we had learned this before, but certainly right here, we hear that he was sent here for for effectively having sex with the wrong woman, mm-hmm. uh, somebody above his station. And uh he also got made a steward. He got made a steward and he's being sent to Eastwatch by the Sea, which is one of the other castles that we were talking about before. And he hears John complaining about how unfair things are that he's going to have to be a steward like Darion is because John's so much better than Darion. And Darion's like, fuck you, man. Like, you want to know what's unfair? The girl wanted to sleep with me. She right. was all for it. This was not rape. And I got hauled before her dad before a lord and uh and she said she wasn't into it because she was going to get in trouble and now i'm here for the rest of my life like how are you going to complain about these things and one of the things that i really like in this story we've talked a lot about character growth particularly surrounding john and a couple of others of ours but moments like these are a reminder that growth like this is not linear you don't mm. have one step forward with a character because you don't have one step forward with a person where, okay, they've dealt with this and now they're past it. And while John listens to Sam pretty quickly, okay, you're right, I was being an asshole, uh, he still has the same reaction that he would have had three months ago, six months, however long it's been, because he's still that same kid. He's still trying to learn and uh, really learn from those lessons and really make them a part of who he is and a part of what he's trying to do with himself. And he's getting the reaction that, of course, you're going to get when a rich, stuck-up kid learns that he's not going to get to be rich, stuck-up anymore. Right. And the poor kid around him is like, go fuck yourself. John's quick to quick to understand that and quick to remember some words that Benjen had told him. Uh, he remembers Benjen saying that on the wall, a man only gets what he earns. Uh, and that he followed that by saying to John, you're no ranger, John, only a green boy with the smell of summer still on you. Uh, I think that it's easy to to kind of get high in one's own britches. You know, John's done some pretty awesome stuff in basic training. John's, you know, John's, uh, you know, helped bring bond these people together. People and it's have been easy following to, him. Yeah, that's right. It's easy to just assume, well, that makes me, you know, the quality of a general. Uh, but he's still just somebody who just finished basic training. And, you know, so so it, it's good, good on him for remembering it. It happens really fast. But uh, yeah. but good, good for that. I like the specific line also that Sam has that really brings John back to earth. John says, I never asked for this. And Sam says, none of us are here for asking, which I think is the perfect reminder. Like John is the only one that we've met so far, literally the only person in the entire Night's Watch that we've met. We don't know the circumstance of everyone, but one for one, the only guy who signed up for this. Yep. Everyone else is here against their will. And for him to turn around and complain about what he gets given after that fact feels particularly out of line. And, and when Sam says that, John feels ashamed and says, yeah, I've been, I've been acting like a child. That's on me. That comes to a close and the chapter kind of shifts. John kind of gets over his, uh, you know, be, being kind of petulant Jeez. about his situation. Yeah. And, and, and accepts and, and comes to understand, you know, what, what he's heard from others and, and and very much from Sam and says, you're right, I'm going to accept this. I also can, under- it's also not lost by the way, like on me, by the way, that like how good of John to understand and accept this, but like 
it within the context of like you're probably being groomed to take this over like it's not yeah. like you're such a lowborn here um yeah also- no it, it would be an, an interesting different scenario to deal with where john was made a steward because he's just gonna be a steward like right. Chet or whoever or darion or sam yeah. where he just he's just gonna have one of the shit jobs deal with it um that would be interesting here he at least has something to cling on to for why he's better than everyone else uh, which which undercuts the value of this moment i think but with that said uh the chapter shifts they uh they go from his sort of petulance to now you know going to to to, it's now time for everybody to make the pledge and they're all doing it in front of their own gods and, and with people there's no it, it was pointed out earlier in the chapter there's no werewoods within that anybody's mm-hmm. seen uh up at the night's watch here yeah there are none in castle black and we find out that uh in fact they're they're going to ride out past the wall a little bit uh and this is and, John's first time yeah and so it's John it's Sam it's a handful of others uh like 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 uh I want to call it administration from the night's watch like I don't remember anybody's name who else went with them yeah um, it's a it's kind of a random collection of people mm-hmm. uh there's certainly some administrators but alongside them there are random men of the night's watch we've got somebody like Dywin, who is right. just an old grizzled private uh you know it's it's just whoever's available because they need an escort yeah uh and they go out and they are joined also by uh john's direwolf by ghost yes and uh and ghost kind of like takes off <laughs> to do his own thing as he always does yeah. While John, Sam, and their uh, entourage go to the Werewoods. Uh, it's worth noting, we, we get our first description of going through the wall to the other side because it's the first time John's doing it. Mm-hmm. And so just as a bit of world building, it, it's there's such pressure in this brief story of them passing through the wall. And I mean physical pressure. Uh, they go through a tunnel under the wall that's kind of chiseled into the ice there that along the way they pass through three iron gates that are locked with chains so you really just get such a sense of scale and i don't know about you i'm I'm a little skittish when it comes to tunnels generally speaking you know you, you can really feel the intensity and the immensity mm. of that as you go through it. it kind of conjured up images for me of uh you know one of the classic tours that you do when you're on uh birthright or some other organized trip to israel is a passage alongside the western wall underneath the buildings that go through there and it gets really cramped is that's the reason i'm conjuring this up you know not the the political or religious implications of course but it's really tight in there and and so that's just what i'm picturing it's a you know it's a military group riding out on their horses but they're passing through a really really long underground tunnel with a thousand feet of ice above them uh and, and so you can kind of sense the danger in that they do make it through though and we find that uh they come to a really kind of interesting set of werewoods I uh, mm-hmm. uh, the werewoods is made up of what is it I have it here there, there's nine werewoods grew in a rough circle uh and basically they they point out that even in the wolf's wood you never found more than two or three of the white trees growing together this is right. a really unique place and I think it speaks to the sort of uh untouched nature of north of the wall not that it's untouched not that there's no one there but it's not the sort of colonized nature as we have it uh, as we've seen so far south of the wall yeah um, so we do know that some aspect of the werewoods uh certainly the imposition of the new gods alongside the, the old comes from the conquest of the andals so when there was an immigration into the seven kingdoms area however many centuries or millennia ago that that was done and so we're moving into an area that has been even less touched than the north by the new gods by the westerosi culture which makes perfect sense it i also think it's notable in addition to the tunnel passing through the wall we get a lot of comments from john on this trip that they take of how eerie it is how weird it is to be in this environment that's different the haunted forest was much the same as the wolf's wood the quote says Mm -hmm. and yet the feel of it was very different perhaps it was all in the knowing and that kind of fear of the unknown that fear of the darkness permeates this whole scene which i think is a really nice build up to the way the chapter ends which we'll get to in a moment but it also kind of relates back to other things we've been talking about about north of the wall i think about Tyrion standing on top of the wall looking out into the night and for the first time understanding why the wall is necessary really feeling that visceral fear and here you have john who has dealt with similar environments in the wolf's wood 
Uh, he's from the North, he's of the North, and has this sort of experience with similar types of places. And even he looks around and goes, it's not that different, but it feels different in a yeah. really scary way. Um, and of course, it's impossible to talk about a fear of the unknown with a capital U without talking about the others with a capital O. Uh, you know, we're there. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're north of the wall now. This is the only place we've seen these zombie creatures who are doing something different. And, and so that foreboding, that sense of doom that John has here uh, is very palpable for me as a reader, knowing that they're entering this area of danger where there is this, this issue that nobody's talked about the entire course of the book that is lurking just out of sight in this in this wood, potentially. I like that. And I also found too that that more than just the intensity of being over there, but there's a sense of magic. There's just a sense of like, like something is here. They talk about their, you know, I think it's Sam who whispers, you know, like they're watching us. The old gods are watching yeah. us. You can, there's a presence of it and a sanctity to it that really stands out. Um, we have, we at, you know, here, these two at the woods, they, they make their pledge and I'm not going to go into the pledge. It's a lovely pledge, but it's what I'm going to, I, I would like to, to read it into the record if you will like, it's like it's to not honor too long. the night's watch yeah no i i think it's really nice and it really underlines what lord commander mormont was talking about in his speech earlier and so mm -hmm. i think it's worth noting the entirety of it hear my words and bear witness to my vow night gathers and now my watch begins it shall not end until my death i shall take no wife hold no lands father no children I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch for this night and all the nights to come. And, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in here. The fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, all, all of that. But the core of it is the alienation that they're entering into. The, the beginning of this quote is all about here are the things I'm giving up. Here are the things that no longer tie me to the rest of the realm. And you can see some of the necessity in that in terms of pulling them away from their old allegiances and the, the rivalries that might split the Night's Watch down the middle and things of that nature. But at the same time, it, it helps show how they enforce discipline here by removing them from who they used to be. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it was fine. <laughs> I well, no, I, I mean, I, I, think that's, I think that's totally fair. I, I think this is natural for, for military, and you right. have military experience in your yeah. background. I feel like this is kind of fundamental to the nature of this job. Uh, so in that sense, it yeah, doesn't agree. stick out, but I, I do think it's worth paying attention to because it's interesting to see. I've talked a few times on the podcast about a book I, I finished a little while ago, The uh, the History of Debt by David mm -hmm. Raber. Yeah. And he talks extensively about the ties between debt and slavery historically, obviously debt slavery being a fundamental part of that, but how slavery is so based in this concept of alienation. You can only make somebody a slave by removing them from all the ties the relationships that make them human. Uh, and it's only by fully separating them from that background that you're able to turn them into a commodity, turn a person into something that can be bought and sold. And that really stuck out to me on this read in reading through both Lord Commander Mormont's speech and now this oath, that that's what they're doing with these people. Yeah. It's not a form of slavery, but it is a way to isolate them and attach them to this institution that would otherwise be impossible and the fact that that is normal and natural for military roles i don't think makes it less sure. interesting that's fair that's fair enough i will say though that uh once the pledge is taken i the that sort of sense of sanctity and reverence continues along with a sense of a little bit of concern the sun is setting it's time to start heading back Ghost comes back from wherever he's Specifically been. Specifically, Dywin, uh, who I yeah. already mentioned, mm -hmm. a gnarled old, old forester we hear. So this is kind of the, the old Nan style of, of intelligence and knowledge. Says That's right. Something smells wrong. Uh, we should get out of here. I, Ghost comes back, you know, kind of joins, re rejoins the group a little bit before they start heading out. John is quick to notice that Ghost uh, with the white fur and red eyes looks eerily identical to yeah. the godwoods that they're the, the the weirwoods that they're uh that they're sort of praying at and making this white on red yep absolutely although it is a little uh well 
it speaks to John's youth to say that his first thing to notice was the fur on his dog, which he hasn't, uh, you know, that he's had for and, quite some time and, now. And not what, Michael? <laughs> and not uh, what others are quick to point out, which is, hey, what's in Ghost's mouth? Oh, it's a hand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would probably draw the eyes. That seems think fair. That, that might be some, but uh, and that's that's where uh, that's where the chapter ends. And so we have this this wonderful. I, I think we have a really nice uh, uh, conclusion to one part of John's story and an introduction to the next. We are opening up the next. So tell me, Michael, whose hand is this? What's happening? Why is there a hand? <laughs> uh, well, Dan, let me tell you about the origins of hands. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, the, How stoned are we? Oh, oh, fingers yeah. are weird, man. Fingers are, are real trippy. Um <laughs> I'll tell you. So for, first of all, obviously, there, there's no context, right? Like, no idea. Yeah, it could it's be, just a hand. Maybe it's from the prologue for all we know. It could be. Uh, it uh, could be. What, yeah. What's his face? Uh, I don't know. Waymar Royce. Waymar Royce. Yeah. Right. So maybe it's his hand who we know is has been like kind of zombieatized. Um, we do know that happened. Uh, what he said, eight, nine days from the wall. So he was pretty far away, but it's possible. Hey. Good hands will travel. Uh, but I, I will say, I my, my instinct, my my guess, my gut is it's Benjamin's hand. Ooh. Uh, but only Spicy. because, yeah, but it's only because I don't know anybody else past the wall. Right. Uh, you know, Waymer Royce, who we talked about, who was quite a ride away. Uh, you know, we've got Benjamin, who never came back, and his like like group that went out there. We have gotten pretty much once per John chapter a reference to the fact that Benjamin is still missing. Right. Uh, so that's that's notable. So that's my thought. But the truth is, is that like, I I can't help but think from a higher level that there's. It's one of three options, and only one of them really kind of makes sense to me right now. One option is the one that makes sense is that it's Benjamin's because that's going to be mm-hmm. a continuation of a storyline that we've been seeing, and it'll kind of be this not an inciting incident as much as like a reason to be wondering where Benjamin is. Is the hand fresh, uh, you know, or whatever it might a be? Great question. Uh, the second one is is that it's a wildlings. Uh, hand, okay. right? We've heard about, you know, we've we've heard allusions to these wildlings past the wall. Mance uh, Raider, yeah. Mance Raider, and whoever he is. We've met a couple of these people uh, south of the wall. Um, but if it is one of theirs, I don't think the Night's Watch would care. Uh, great, good riddance, right? Like they they raid us. Yeah. We don't like them, so that doesn't really get us anywhere. And the third is that it's the hand of one of the zombies, right? One of the others, uh, these White Walkers, and that would, I I I wonder if that's if. Personally, I just think it's a little early in the series of books to get concrete proof of mystical beings past the wall. Okay, interesting. That's my my thought. Because you you've complained lately. That's too harsh of a word to use, but about that not being tied in yet functionally. You know, uh, we saw it in the prologue. It hasn't super come up again since mm-hmm. then, uh, other than than references, Some brief references. Yeah, yeah. I do want to briefly clarify. We have. It seems from the prologue, the White Walkers slash others, who are some mm-hmm. sort of mystical being. And then we also have zombies that the White Walkers slash others seem to create. So oh, there, okay. yeah, yeah there were these weird elfish other things that were referred to as the White Walkers. The others, those fought against Waymar, Waymar Royce, for example. And then Waymar Royce stood back up and was alive again. So got it, got it, got it. Uh, the okay, others okay. themselves are not the zombies, but regardless, uh, yeah, no, those all seem seem reasonable to me. Uh, I think it's fair to say that that we're not totally sure. You know, it's worth remembering at this point that we have two distinct threats north of the wall. We have Mance Raider, Raider and his wildling army. We got a reference to him from the wildlings we met south of the wall with mm-hmm. Bran, uh, and the fact that they're doing something north of the wall. Ned referenced Mance. Uh, being a king beyond the wall, drawing people to himself. There's some sort of threat there. And mm-hmm. then, of course, we have the prologue chapter. The others are back and and in our lives in a way they haven't been in centuries or millennia or however long it is. Uh, but either way, it, it, it seems like there's something related to one of those two threats showing up in the Night's Watch yeah. uh, storyline here. So with that said, I stick by what I what I said that's not related directly to the hand, but is simply that I'm excited for this introduction to the next chapter of John. 
Uh, yeah. Not literally in the book, but in John's experience here. So literally also in the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think this, yeah, this will be much more exciting than watching John learn how to like pour wines, you know, sommelier for... for. <laughs> <laughs> now, wouldn't that be fun? He's like, he's re- he's learning where to put the fork. Uh, yeah. Like, oh, gross. A hand. Table. Everybody get the Rangers, including the new recruits to come and deal with this. John. You have to learn place settings. <laughs> uh, and we spend the rest of the book in the John chapters. That would be a, like, a weird story. It's possible. I'm not trying to rule it out for you, but uh well, yeah, plenty no, of directions totally where this could go. And I'm excited, I'm excited to see to see. Before we move on to Ned, mm-hmm. do you want to put a flag in the sand whose hand what the hand means before? I mean, like, look, this is an obvious cliffhanger. We're gonna have a John chapter in our future. We're gonna get some resolution. Do you want to make a prediction here? Well, I'd like to first say, I just don't think that flag in the sand is an expression. Probably not, uh, no. But I will. Did I mention the gin? <laughs> You're flying. <laughs> uh, but I will say, you know what, though? I think in terms of predictions, I'm going to stick with what I said. I'm assuming it's not really a prediction. It's just an assumption. Uh, I'm assuming it's Benjen's hand. I'm okay. assuming this is going to be connected intimately to the Night's Watch to make it like something relevant to them. Something they have to react to. Exactly. Uh, right. And interested to see what happens there. I am even more interested in figuring out what John's role in this found hand will be uh, since he's now a steward. And to what we're saying, right? I don't know, understand exactly what his responsibilities are about to be. Uh, so it'll be fun to find out. So we'll see. All right, let's go to this next boring chapter. Oh yeah, nothing happens here. Nothing happens here. What what number is this? Ned 14. 23. 14. It's uh, you know, it's it's really notable at this point because we're on on I think week four of our Ned streak here. Mm-hmm. Uh he's like eight chapters ahead of our second place point of view at this point. Like it's not close at all. Uh, in terms of who has the most chapters over the course of this book. Well, I'm flipping ahead in the book right now, and I can tell you, I can see he Stop doesn't show up for a while. Spoilers, <laughs> Michael. I'm looking at that chapter right title. Um, okay, but it's that because says- he's so secure in his position yeah, that's in right. charge of everything that we just don't even need to check in with him. So here we are with Ned. Let's remember <laughs> we're, where we left Ned off. Uh, King Robert had returned from his board. He dead. And he, yeah, thanks, Dan. I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, he's dead. Um, you know, he was, he was gored. There was a lot of things that happened that I think are notable just to touch on. One, that Ned, after even before Robert returned, turning to Cersei and saying, I know the secret. These are not Robert's children. They are not heirs to the throne. Get out of here. Uh, we have Robert returning and basically getting Ned to, you know, dictating to Ned a letter, which is witnessed and sealed and signed uh, in front of others, basically saying Ned is to be like the, 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 whatever it is, the, the regent, regent uh, yeah. until, until he says Joffrey, I think that Ned rewrites it as his heir uh, yes. is of age. And this is sealed and, and, and seen and witnessed if I'm not mistaken, no, it's this chapter, so we'll get there in a second. Uh, but then King Robert dies, and uh, and that's sort of where we're we're left off. Yeah, uh, we also had some maneuvering last chapter from mm, Renly, right. uh, who wanted to get Ned on his side to effectively overthrow the Lannisters, and then from Littlefinger, who wanted Ned to use his authority to support the Lannisters and to support Joffrey. And and try and push things in that direction. So those are kind of the two major players that we saw last time around. And I'll add though that all, although Littlefinger did bring that up and push for it, he did defer to what Ned asked, which is let's yes. make sure that the King's Guard is well paid right now. Not the King's unders- Guard. I'm sorry, the, the gold uh, cloaks, the, gold the, the City Watch is That's who right. they are. So this is like the King's Landing police force. Yep, uh, who are a couple thousand strong and, and tasked with dealing with crime in the city and specifically that they're well paid and understand the letter that king robert has left behind which is that ned is in charge Uh, and so Littlefinger said great i'll go and do that and so here we are we kick off with ned whatever number you said 14 yes and nailed it i'm so proud thank you uh we once again start with ned in dream dreaming of uh of his 
of his sister, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah. The light of yeah. dawn. I'm just looking right now. He doesn't really, we don't get much of his dream here. Yeah. Uh, he just kind of wakes up into the scene that he's in. So he's sort of woken up. We find out again that the that Robert's dead and basically it's the small council is brought together uh, to, to kind of like discuss what's happening and what's going on. Yeah. Um, uh, it's specifically Picel shows up to tell him that. Mm-hmm. We also do get a brief moment right when Ned wakes up where uh, all of the Lannisters and the Lannister men are kind of having a little training session right outside his window, hmm. which um, is, is notable. He doesn't really react to it. His, his first response is to think to himself, is this brave show for my benefit? And then he thinks, why hasn't Cersei left the city yet? He should. Uh and you know he notices this is going on that they're having a little melee having a little fight outside and and is just curious about that he has a brief breakfast Mm -hmm. uh has this conversation with his daughters just before we get to the point you were talking about Mm -hmm. sansa asks you know can i say goodbye to joffrey before we leave which is going to be in the very immediate future and ned says no she starts crying and runs out ned says it's fine I'll, i'll explain to her when we get back to winterfell I uh, and Arya does have time for one last lesson with uh with what's his name Pharrell. Yes, Serio Pharrell. Yeah, that that was her request. Sansa wanted to talk to Joffrey. Arya wanted to go and train a little more with Serio. Um, this is not a long chapter by any means. There are some like really fast moving pieces where basically characters are kind of set up and we understand what's going on. Uh, we find basically. And correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, but Ned calls together the small council and basically says, we need we need to come together. I want them to come to me. I think this is going to be the safest place for it to happen. And they sort of each arrive one at a time and we, we figure different things out. We have Sir Barristan Selmy, who is the head of the King's Guard, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, we have Littlefinger who comes in and who says, hey, Ned, by the way, thumbs up. I did what you asked. And this is in reference to the gold cloaks. We have Varys walking in being various which is just kind of like nice smelling i guess yeah he uh he actually does provide some interesting information he says uh my little birds have told me the king has passed and also have told me renly has fled uh so he will not be joining us renly and sir loris tyrell and a bunch of men kind of hanging hangers on to that group have left the city overnight which sounds like many people understand the writing on the wall right now. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's 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 obviously impossible to talk about this without the specter of what happens at the end of this chapter above sure. us. But everybody is reacting as though there is a political crisis going on where they need to work accordingly. We saw yeah. that last chapter with the the maneuvering that people were trying to do before Robert died. Now that he has died, they need to put plans into action. And this is a place where, you know, Ned's honor kind of fails him. And we talked about that last time in terms of he seemed to realize it was failing him. Mm -hmm. How do you know what the right move is when there is an objectively correct, morally correct, legally correct, whatever it may be outcome. But the way to get there is by getting down in the muck and playing the game and having that fight. And and Ned seems under-equipped for that sort of conversation. Yeah. Everyone else who's on the small council realizes that this is a, a situation, a transition, a time of change, a time of a power vacuum, whatever it may be, and that they need to operate to protect themselves. And Ned is very much so not doing that right now. Yeah. And I, I kind of like, kind of thinking that he is he's moving his daughters out of the you know out of the area yeah and he's doing the thing with the gold cloaks you know like he's trying to do stuff but he's not doing it himself it's not his personal attitude towards towards the world um i will say for such a you know you brought up the specter of the end of this chapter and the truth is this is like a four-page chapter yeah Uh, and and you know a lot of things are sort of setting and dressing for things the the small council has met and then is interrupted and ned reveals the letter and has everyone look at it it was signed and sealed ned is in charge they are interrupted and requested to come at once to basically like to to the iron throne to the throne room where specifically to joffrey has summoned them to kneel to him Mm -hmm. he wants their pledges of allegiance and they are called in 
and 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 I'm I, and let me know if there's more specifics you want to get to because I think that really the meat here is what happens at the end. Uh, they're called in and forced to face Joffrey and Joffrey and Joffrey and Cersei. I'm going to talk about them as a unit right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both there and they're both saying, you know, basically everybody needs to kneel and accept that this is the king. He's 14, but it's time for, or I think he's 14. It's time for him to be accepted. He's the heir uh, to the throne. Yeah. Ned is reassured by the gold cloaks that he sees all around. Uh, he feels reassured because of what Littlefinger has has claimed to have done for him. And yeah, then there, there are the, two points. the letter. Yeah. Uh, brings up the the will, the last will and testament from from the king, and says this is the will of the king. That's absolutely right. There there are two points I want to talk about before we get to where this lands. The first one is the fact that Joffrey is and and Cersei, because again, you're absolutely right, they're a unit, uh, but are bringing people in to respect them. And it's impossible to read this without thinking of it in terms of the chapter we read last time, specifically Renly's response: the person who holds the king holds the throne. Uh, this is what that means in a tangible sense. Joffrey is able to use the pageantry of the Iron Throne, of the courtroom, mm-hmm. of the crown, all of the trappings that go into it, and use it to inform his authority. And Ned's response to that is this piece of paper from the old king who is no longer alive. And Ned's misreading of that power dynamic, I think, is so exceptionally crucial to the direction that this this chapter goes. And I think we see it immediately because Cersei says, well, let me see that letter. And she reads it and she shreds it. Yeah. Uh, and she says, what 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 value is paper? This is, is this meant to be your shield, my lord, a piece That's... of paper? <laughs> uh, and then things move real fast. Yeah. Uh, to end this. The second thing I wanted to point out was we get such a, a crystal clear painting of the display of authority that Cersei is putting on here. And this is why Ned feels comforted by the gold cloaks. But we get five members of the King's Guard, everybody but Sir Barristan, who's walking in with Ned, and Jamie, who's out of town. Five mm-hmm. of them, they're fully armored. Lannister men, fully armored. Sander Clegane, fully armored. Everybody is there and armed to the teeth. This was this was not an accident this is not you know like like when you think of the riverland peasants coming before the throne this is not the way they were greeted in terms of bringing people politically in you do not have bared steel you do not have armor across everyone you do not have have steel protect steel breastplates and gauntlets and and Mm -hmm. the whole nine yards and Ned walks in and notices, to his credit, he realizes exactly what that means. He is walking into a fortified area, and the only reason he's comfortable with any of it is that the gold cloaks outnumber the people who he's standing against. I will say that Cersei also kind of points out, she's like, and I don't think she's doing it as directly as I'm going to say, but like, she's basically like, listen, I'm throwing you a bone. <laughs> like, I'm trying to help you help yourself. Uh, be, like you need to understand that this is the situation. Yeah, this boy is on the throne. Get in line. Like understand. And Ned goes ahead and just waves the letter, and he's saying, "No, you have to follow the laws as they're written." And and, and yeah, she specifically demanded. offers him the chance to go home. She yeah. says, "Step down as the hand, swear your allegiance to the new king, and leave." Like, and that is very. I mean, we don't get it in the moment, but very tempting for Ned. You know, like that is yeah. something he's been thinking about a lot since he got to King's Landing. And that's a real option on the table in front of him. I believe that that is real. You know, look, he, he wouldn't be able to play political games in the future because Cersei would mistrust him as soon as he entered that mm-hmm. world. But it is a real option on the table for him to go back to the north, back to Winterfell, and just ignore what's happening in the rest of the world. As he had been doing before arriving right. at King's Landing. You that's know, this not is out not of a. The- yeah, like step away from the politics you've been involved in for the past, you know, 15 years. This is you've been here for less than a year. Go away. You know, go back to where you've been. None of this has to do with you. And he doesn't. Uh, and basically, the, I, I'm going to jump into it. You know, all do of a sudden, uh, Fat Tom is stabbed from behind. Uh, yep. It turns out that the gold cloaks have not been uh, given the direction as as Ned has thought. And he finds Ned finds himself with a dagger against his throat, held by Littlefinger, who basically says, "I told you not to trust me." Yeah, and he's got that's flair for the, the dramatic. 
Well, I, you, you know what? Like this is, we've talked about this before and, and I, I'm glad to get here now because the truth is, is that I do, you say it in the intro all the time. I did watch the first few seasons, the first two, yeah. two and a half seasons of Game of Thrones. This is all part of season. This incredible moment is part of season one. There's still one more big thing to happen that is part of season one that I assume will be part of this book, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll get to when we get to. Uh, but the fact is, is I think even without, even without the 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 reference of the television show, just from this chapter, and then many things that in this chapter that happened are very similar to things that have been happening. We've been talking about it. The the rest of the characters in this world down here in Westeros uh, has, ha, are moving around and and understanding this political situation in a way that Ned has not. To, yeah, this is not a shock that the shock there is a shock that that this was the dramatic that the, the the drama that this was. But with that said, it's not a shock that Ned's losing. I I I don't understand Littlefinger. I don't get right. what he. Well, that was going to be my first question this. for you. I don't get why he's being so flamboyant about it. Like, <laughs> like, like doesn't. Well, I don't have an answer to that other than Littlefinger is flamboyant like that. But uh, yeah, but no. I, let me let me throw out some options for sure, you because yeah. I think this is one of the interesting things here. Littlefinger has been an enigma throughout the time that we've known him. Uh, that's certainly been a central consideration, a certain central part of the conversation. We've talked a lot about his motives and how he interacts with the Starks throughout the time that we've known him. On the one hand, and I want to hear how you feel about this as an option, this feels like a smart play. Like, he is getting in with Joffrey. He is getting in with Cersei. He took Ned's instructions and did the opposite in a way that will set him up very well for a world that is ruled by the Lannisters. Uh, and Ned specifically ignored his advice to do something that went somewhat along with that. So, so just from a material sense, there's that aspect. And I, I want to hear your reaction to that. One of the other things that's worth considering, though, is our relationship with Littlefinger from a Stark perspective has been seen through Catelyn, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Catelyn has this relationship from childhood with him where he was a very, very close friend of hers and, you know, had some sort of puppy dog love for her where he was willing to challenge Brandon Stark, her suitor, for her hand and then got his ass kicked Mm -hmm. and went home. So maybe there is some animosity there. I mean, he certainly expressed it through his jokes at Ned's expense. Uh, so there's some of some of all of that. How do, how does any of that sit with you? Well, if not not the greatest. Uh, and that has more to do with the Littlefinger character than any of the the truths that you've just been saying that we've sort of experienced. I don't I don't understand why I don't understand why he would be so uh sort of like like in your face about it to Ned. I feel like keeping this kind of close to the vest about what he did, even though it would be clear to Ned, he, he seems to be exposing himself to others that are standing there. Right. He, he seems to be sort of a, like admitting himself to being just a deceitful, duplicitous person, uh, which I can't imagine that like the Lannisters are going to love. Uh, it's probably not a great look. Yeah, it just seems, I'm not sure how he's self-serving. I, I will say that my first instinct during the reading was like, well, why are you doing this? I'm sure you would have been in a good position with the Starks if you had done, you know, he, right. he got to choose who gets the throne here. You know, a thousand gold cloaks is, is a huge number that would have really tipped the scales in a different way. Yeah, it seems like he got to pick the winner here. I will say, though, that what comes back to mind is what Tyrion said to his sellsword, Braun. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is, you know, if you had stuck with Catelyn, you, they, they turn their noses up at people like you. And yeah. I wonder if that's sort of how how Littlefinger was feeling too. Is like, look, like I am who I am. Ned has always looked at me with his snarky, stark, yeah, you know, snark. I mean, Littlefinger certainly has no love for the Stark, yeah, worldview. He's expressed that many times. Let me let me throw an extra log on the fire here. Sure, which is. Ned's approach to this whole situation would have resulted, could still result in putting Stannis on the throne. Mm -hmm. That is the heir, that is the legal heir, that is who comes next. 
One of the things that we've learned about Stannis, or have at least heard reference to through the small council meetings, is that Stannis tried to get Robert to outlaw brothels. Yeah, right. We've talked about this, and I, I get that. And I know Littlefinger's little money owns, yeah. is from brothels. So like, maybe it's as simple as, if I back this guy, I lose a lot of money in my yeah. investments. You know, yeah, like, I, like maybe that's where it comes from. I get that too. I will say that that this particular moment rubbed me a little bit the wrong way from a writing perspective. Like, mm-hmm. like it it just seemed to be unmotivated, or or the motivations just weren't. even the re- him revealing himself. I guess. Yeah, and or do and, you mean the actions of the gold cloaks in like at all? The fact if, that if Littlefinger is... sided against Ned. If this is the direction that Littlefinger was kind of like moving in, then why was Littlefinger like helping Ned unravel the mystery around John Aaron? Well, was he? Well, didn't he sort of injure, like bring him to the places that were Lord Aaron or John Aaron was like, like, kind yeah. Of so we talked about and- this at the time, and, and you uh, made a pred- prediction is the wrong word, but an interpretation of events. Littlefinger kind of had a knack for showing up right as Ned was about to leave. And giving him something to keep him around. And then crucially, last time that we were speaking, Littlefinger came in to chat with Ned, where Ned asked him for the gold cloaks. And Ned revealed, hey, by the way, Cersei's kids are not Roberts. And Littlefinger was like, oh, wow, that's so crazy. I'm so surprised. So, you know, how much was Littlefinger helping Ned versus how much was Littlefinger manipulating Ned so as to hold open his cards with Ned in the capital for something like this. I get that. I, I understand that. And, and, and even going with that, I, I stand by what I say, though. I, I think that this relationship between Ned and Littlefinger demands that something tips too far in a direction. Either Littlefinger is smarter than he than I've been led to believe. Okay. He's much uh, uh like like much more cunning and daring than than he is described to be he's known to be you know self-serving he's known to be slimy he's known to be all these things but like this seems really daring what he's trying to do here he's doing deep political intrigue in one version another version is ned's just a lot dumber than everybody seems to hold him to which is right and we've kind of seen that and we talk about that plenty, I think it's a little it's, of both yeah yeah and it probably is but it's just it this was a hard pill to swallow just the reveal of this and the sort of like it, it almost felt like uh uh caricaturish you know i can just imagine him a little finger with his sort of like french waxed mustache being like yeah shit-eating grid <laughs> no i i think that i think that you're drawing on something fair and interesting which is little fingers flair for the traumatic mm-hmm I where the only place where I break with you is that I think that that side to Littlefinger personality wise has already shown up a little bit through the writing, Mm -hmm. you know, him at the tournament, him popping up with Sansa. He seems to like being that "Mm -hmm, I'm, you know, the MC in the in the play, the the MC and Pippin sort of character. Like he seems to self-consciously be trying to adopt that personality. Uh, and so from that perspective, it, it seems to align with him. But I do think it's a reasonable question to ask. And I'm curious your thoughts on this. If that is dumb, you know, like, like there's a world where Cersei and Joffrey, not really Joffrey, but Cersei knows what he did for her without him stepping up and announcing it in the courtroom. I don't know. I just can't help but think that from what we've seen of Cersei and the Lannisters that like anybody who would have even appeared to be a bed buddy with the Starks is going to be like on watch. And I think that he seems to be playing like like deep into that field. You know, he's yeah. been a spy, he's been whatever. I get it. I see what's going on and 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 I understand it. But I think there's just a there something about this moment is rubbing me just a little bit the wrong way. And it's not what what is happening as much as just sort of how it came together here i i know I, I think that's I don't know fair if i can yeah put my finger on it precisely one of the things that i know about george r. r martin as a writer and i think he's talked about this in public appearances is something he really doesn't like is when there's a finger on the scales in favor of the main characters mm-hmm. you know kind of a plot armor sort of sense to things mm-hmm. uh, but he does really enjoy to do the opposite and right. I think you kind of end up with one of the two in any sort of storytelling. Uh, and so, look, 
from a luck perspective, I mean, we talked about this with our ongoing argument of whether or not Catelyn is stupid, of the timing of her taking Tyrion perfectly coinciding with Ned resigning being the hand. These are the types of things that are certainly being influenced from the outside, from the author, that are really helpful to have fall in place in exactly this way. And this is definitely one of the twists over the course of the story that yeah. cuts against our protagonist in that sort of sense. So, so I get why that would leave a, a distaste in your mouth. Sure. I will say one other thing that comes to mind too, is that I, it was something that, that I don't understand is why Ned didn't like when he learned the secret of like John Aaron and what, what he had found out, why Ned didn't send letters to everyone about it. Uh, well, he did send one to Stannis. Oh, that's right. That's we don't right. know what it said. We don't know exactly what was in there, but this information, something has been made public. Uh, and that is that is worth knowing. We also know Stannis, of course, was involved in John Aaron's investigation. So mm -hmm. between what he learned from that and what Ned sent him, this is somebody who we have not met yet who seems to have a lot of information about where things stand right now. So Cersei winning this little battle that they had in the throne room may not be a resolution of that argument writ large. Right. That's fair. Well, who knows, man? There's no way to find out. Yeah, uh, that's going to wrap us up for the podcast. I guess we're done here. The story's over. Dan, we're done. I've, this has been fun, Dan. Uh, <laughs> next, I assume we'll do mathematics textbooks. Honestly, it's not the worst idea oh, for me. It is I, the worst I idea. Could, Shut up. I could use a refresher. No, you couldn't. No one needs that. Use ChatGPT. I, I realized like three months ago, I don't know how to do long division anymore. Yeah, but why would you ever need to? That's a fair point. You Thank make you. a good point. Listen to me, kids. Don't do math. <laughs> Michael's right. Listen to Mike. <laughs> anyway, you have any last thoughts for us on these chapters? Uh, no, I really do think, and I stand by what I said at the end of the, the John chapter. You know what? We've gotten the conclusion in, in these two chapters. We've really gotten some conclusions on some long-running storylines, and we're now getting introductions to new directions of where things are going. I'm very excited to see what happens. I am excited to see some other characters and their chapters. I want to get back to Tyrion. I really want to see, like, like weird to say it, but Arya and Sansa and how they're going to take all of this. I, I, I want to see some of the fallout, and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, well, I've got great news there, because okay. next chapter we have our first time in such a very long time. I think it's been five episodes since our last time doing this. We do not have a Ned chapter to read. Woo! We do not see from his perspective what comes next. We've got Arya, and we've got Sansa. So we're sticking around there King's we Landing. We're going to hang out with the girls and see how they feel about their dad getting arrested and Fat Tom getting stabbed through the back. Love it. Love love to hear it. Probably they don't feel great, if I had to guess. I don't know. Sansa's kind of shitty. Yeah, maybe. We'll see how she does. <laughs> All right. I will, uh, I will talk to you soon. We'll talk about these. All right. Talk to you soon. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing two chapters, A Game of Thrones Aria 4 and Sansa 4. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. And tell us your feedback or thoughts on Twitter at Bros with Banners. I've also been advertising recently to people I'm talking with. Feel free to ask us questions. Tweet at us. Uh, questions for Michael to have to answer on here. We'd have a great time with that. Anyway, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, as always, for listening.